This is CliffCentral.com. You're listening to The Bounce Show with Byron Karpinski. I'm Hugh Bladen, and it's on CliveCentral.com. Um, it's Cliff Central, Blades, and it's Ben Karpinski. Why didn't you tell me? Ben Karpinski on CliveCentral.com. Welcome to it. It is November the 2nd. One month and I'm going to be 36 years old, but that's not important. The important thing is that we are getting towards the end of the year, and today we've got another great show of the podcast. Or, if you're listening live, the radio show, however you like to slice it. Got a very interesting show for you today. I was in Rwanda last week in Kigali for a very, very special cricket match. So I'm going to tell you all about that. And then, remember a few weeks ago, Dennis Friedman, our good Aussie friend, was on the line. He was getting ready for a trip to Pakistan, visa pending. Well, he got the visa and he went to Pakistan. And by all counts, he literally, well, he had the greatest cricketing, fact-finding, journalistic trip you could possibly have. And Dennis being Dennis, I mean, he really did get everything out of every single day. So we'll be having him back to talk all about this amazing trip. An amazing cricketing nation that's been in the shadows the last few years. Right, so um, I guess we should get into it. Ketranada light spots in the background. Very cool music video. Do enjoy this. Also, there's a really great YouTube channel called the, called the Boiler Room, and uh, you should see this. Is, he plays this live set, and uh, it's pretty fun. Anyway, let's not get um, distracted here. Let's get straight into it. My Rwanda trip, all for the cricket is hope. So in a past life, uh, let's just call it my 20s, or yeah, I, I used to be a DJ. That's what I used to do. I used to play house music. I used to rock the party, all that kind of stuff. That was my life. That's all I did. I used to literally wake up kind of late. Uh, I would, yeah, I'd be a DJ. It was a very long, long time ago, but I did enjoy it. But then it got to a stage where I had to grow up and I wanted to be an adult and I didn't want to be like an old fat DJ hanging around young girls. I always thought that was the creepiest thing in the whole world. So, uh, in my latter twenties, I kind of gave it all up and I kind of regretted it a little bit because I did enjoy it. Uh, it was one of the things I was kind of better at than average. Anyway, um, I DJed again over the weekend. I was invited to this amazing trip to Rwanda. Now, what do you know about Rwanda? Well, unfortunately, the first thing that comes to mind, uh, well, were the genocides. Back in 1994, during a hundred day period, a million people were massacred purely because of their uh, tribal heritage, tribal background. Anyway, I, I don't really want to get into that side of things because, you know, we've got to move on in life. But Rwanda was just such a fascinating place, mostly because they are now using cricket to kind of embrace different cultures and kind of move on from those, the, the dark days of the genocide. Now, it was a while ago, back in 1994, but I mean, those scars, they're, they're kind of there for life. You imagine that a million people massacred. This wasn't just a few people who might have died in a, in a freak terror attack or a shooting here or there. This was a systematic kind of culling of people or killing. Let's just call it what it is. So it's going to be with that country forever and ever. But anyway, sport brings hope. We all know that. So under the sort of campaign of Cricket Brings Hope, this amazing ground just outside of Kigali was unveiled this past week. So what happened was back in the day, uh, ex-Tory MP, uh, a guy called Christopher Shale, he he was basically, he fell in love with the country of Rwanda and the people and loved going out there and obviously did a whole bunch for the local communities there. And it was his dream to kind of bring cricket to the nation because as we all know, sport has the ability to kind of become, well, just get a whole bunch of people involved in something. You know, it doesn't, not too many barriers. It's something exciting for people. It's a great addition to life and it's a healthy way of doing things and getting people to come together to compete and create, you know, a natural sort of um, camaraderie is a really good thing. So uh, Christopher Shell, he had this idea and he went about getting the wheels in motion. Sadly, he passed away a few years ago, uh, but his son, Albie, took on the legacy of, of, oh, sorry, wanted to 
really bring the legacy to life of creating cricket in Rwanda. So he carried it on. And for the last few years, he's been raising funds. It's been an amazing movement behind Rwandan crickets and creating this ground. So I went there. Uh, my brother and I went there. Uh, basically, we we're going to be part of the celebrity match, which was on the Saturday. So Herschel Gibbs was the captain of the one team. Michael Vaughan was the captain of the other team. So it was a real star-studded event. I mean, Duchess Sarah Ferguson was there, the actual president of Rwanda, Mr. Paul Kagama. Sorry, His Excellency Paul Kagama. He was there as well. It was like a proper, proper event. One of the biggest events probably Rwanda has seen in many a year. And, uh, well, we got to the ground. It's about a 20 minute drive from Kigali. Kigali, by the way, is just as clean and pretty amazing as everyone says it is. You feel very secure there. It's a very happy place. Everyone seems to have a purpose and it's just a cool place to go to. Uh, so you drive about 20 meters, sorry, 20 minutes from uh, Kigali, the, the nation's capital. And you go into a more of a rural area. Uh, it, well, look, everything in, in Rwanda seems rural because of big sloping hills. It's called the Valley of a Thousand Hills. So, sorry, the Country of a Thousand Hills. Beautiful, beautiful place. And you get to this ground. And, um, like, you know, when you go to a few sporting places in the world, there's like a real presence to it, like, especially with cricket grounds. You know, when you walk out at Lords, uh, when I was very young, I went there. I uh, probably didn't appreciate the full, full value of it, but it's got a presence about it. You look around and you feel like you're somewhere special. It's the same when, um, you know, you go to Newlands in Cape Town for the first time and your eyes, you know, gaze up towards the mountain. There's a lot of grounds, sporting arenas in this world that are very, very special. But there was something just about this place. As, you know, as humble as beginnings are, you get there and you just look around and it just feels so special. So obviously I'm putting a video together to give you some visuals for this on the YouTube, which will go out probably early next week. Uh, it's just, it was something so cool. So while we were there in the first few days, while we were organizing the sound system and booking people to perform, uh, there was a tournament going on where Rwanda's national team was there. Of course, this is all very, very new. Uganda was there. Uganda is a team which is, well, becoming a bit of an East African force, really. Now, we always knew Kenya to be the strongest team in the region. They have been to a World Cup already. They have had success there. Uh, mostly behind a guy like Steve Tokola, who is now actually the coach of the Ugandan side. The Kenyan under-19 team was there. Then there were a bunch of English uh, touring clubs. So just a bunch of people from a variety of cricketing backgrounds in England. And uh, it was a really cool tournament that everyone was kind of getting around with. And then on the Saturday itself, once we had assembled, we met this dude who then we managed to get this huge sound system from. We're talking like a concert sound, sound like concert size sound system. We managed to source 45 local dancers who arrived with outfit changes and it was just amazing. Um, we had an MC, a hype man. I DJ throughout the day. So basically I went to DJ like a T20 sort of match. So, you know, you play music for four or six as wickets and you're playing other things to keep the crowd engaged. So on the back of a couple of days of making a few phone calls and doing a bit of legwork in and around Kigali, we had this amazing production and it was all set to really just unveil this amazing ground. The president arrived. Um, if you think South Africa has some pretty hefty blue light brigades for the dignitaries, well, you should see when this, when this guy arrived. The place basically goes into lockdown and there's soldiers all over the place with big guns and it's pretty secure. So he arrives and there's just a cavalcade of immense amount of cars. He got there, he said a little speech and then the rain came down, but it came down proper. It was, uh, it was like a little bit of drizzle here and there. Most days we were there, but on that day, on this amazing day, it poured down. So it was just bad that the outfield became pretty waterlogged. Uh, it just looked like that was it for the day. It was terrible. There was just no blue sky around and everyone was a little bit down. So, you know, trying to pick up the rhythm, I sort of, or pick up the spirits. I DJed for the first sort of three hours and, uh, then this, the rain stopped. And with that, miraculously, the players came out. Outfield was still a little bit wet, and they said it was going to be a 12-over match. Two overs in, the, the players decided, no, we're going to make it the full 2020 to honor this amazing occasion. And it happened. There was a full T20 match. It was really, really great. It went down to the last over. Uh, it, it was just such a special sporting occasion to be involved in, and I've been involved in a fair few. But to be there on that day and to see the joy with the people, like the locals came out and there was a huge crowd assembled there. They were going nuts. I mean, you got to understand, cricket for a lot of people in Rwanda uh, was just another word. People had no idea what it was, certainly no idea how they could be a part of it. And now this amazing ground is right there. 
and kids from all all walks of life are going to be able to get the chance to play cricket, the chance to interact with other people, and the chance to develop a different skill and just something to really live for, which is just so great. And this is another thing about sport around the world, and this is what it creates. Before the match, the Cricket Without Borders guys were doing a uh, a clinic, and it was just so cool to see these guys coming out, hitting a ball for the first time, throwing a ball, catching, doing all these different drills, and there was so much fun to be had for everyone. And then the match eventually finished. Herschel Gibbs' team won, and there was like champagne at the end, and it was just such an amazing atmosphere. And you looked around, and it was just, like I said, it was just such a great thing to be a part of. So that was my week in Rwanda. Uh, the next day, I did a few more things that I wanted to take off. Obviously, uh, going to the genocide memorial was one thing that you've got to do when you go there. It was a very, very somber experience, but I couldn't help but take some positives out of there and how the human spirit can always progress. I mean, as a as a race, we do make some pretty howling decisions in life, and some terrible ideas are often sort of thrown around, and bad things can happen, such as genocides. I mean, there's been many throughout time. We wonder is no you know it's no no exception to these like bad ideas that with some propaganda and just desperation things happen. Um, but I left I left Rwanda feeling like I, I'd really done something. I, I not obviously I mean humanitarian sense. I was just DJing. If I was part of the process, then great. But I mean I'm I'm not, I'm not claiming that. I feel like I'd done something for myself. I I'd seen how again like we we become quite cynical about sport and we become quite cynical about the teams that we support and administrators and are they doing a good job or people just getting too greedy and taking stuff. But to go out and to go see a project like that come to being and, I, and I've I've got a you know, commend everyone who was involved, especially LB Shale towards, um, you know, the latter stages of this project. He's put his entire life into making this happen. And although a lot of people believe that charity work is often done for personal gain, this is again, one of those experiences where you believe that people are doing it actually for the good of others. And that is just so special to see. And, you know, the legacy is going to be there to be seen from, ta- from going forward. So even though Rwanda, I mean, it's a tiny nation, they're not exactly going to become like Bangladesh and go from nowhere to be having a cricket team. Expectations are going to be in check here. But the thing is, up to 40 schools now play cricket in Rwanda. 40 schools. I mean, go back a few years, the number would never be that. And now with this amazing facility, there's going to be regional tournaments. You'll get uh, other countries coming to Rwanda now as a place to play cricket. And the whole thing is that where do you go from there? Well, once there's a, a, a base to do these things, you can only grow. You know, there could be a second ground that will be established in the next few years. Who knows? I mean, if there is, I'd be immensely privileged to be able to go and, and see that again. So... Uh, Sam Billings, current English uh, cricket, sorry, English cricketer, uh, he's involved. He is now a patron of, of the cause. But to see Michael Vaughan, he put so much effort into this with the fundraising, obviously giving him his time to go and play this match. So it's just really great. It really is. It, it kind of um, restores hope in sport and it restores hope in people wanting to do it, make, make a difference. And Rwanda as a country, well, you know, there's many things to look into, uh, good or bad. The whole process of, of where they've come from, where they are today, it's an amazing, amazing progress. Um, you know, like it is that you hear things about, you know, good, good stories here and there. The story about how once a month everyone comes out to clean the streets and basically keep the place looking immaculate. Well, it's, it's completely true. This, the last Saturday every month, everything comes to a standstill for three hours. No one's allowed to drive. No one's allowed to do anything. You have to get out into the streets and make sure your neighborhood and your community is uh, is clean and everything's looking good. So we were driving to the ground at the time. And I think every sort of kilometer to two kilometers, we were stopped by uh, a soldier, a policeman, a man with a heavy uh, automatic rifle. And we were asked where we were going, why we weren't cleaning. So we had papers to go through and that was fine, but it really is just a very disciplined place. And I mean, we were partying until three in the morning. We were walking the streets wherever it felt completely safe. And it's just something like, it's just something to be said about a place that just doesn't have as a zero tolerance on litter. You're not allowed any plastic. So when you arrive and say you, you bought something from duty free, uh, on the way out of your country and, and seal the plastic bag, they will not let you pass until you've removed the thing from the plastic and given them the plastic. So there's nothing like that there. It's like some people might say, I mean, there's rumors that, you know, if you look at the way things are, it's like the North Korea of Africa. It's very strict. It's very government controlled. Sure. But again, what are the alternatives? You know, people will, the country itself will have its attractors and people will say things about it and its history and how it came to be where it is now. But there's something happening there and you can see there's a lot of dignity with the people. There's a lot of purpose with the people. You know, there's, there's free market trading involved there. Everyone's got some sort of a job. And when that happens, 
only good things can come from that. And just looking back again in South Africa, how there's a lot of idle hands in this place right now. Uh, government's doing absolutely nothing. It almost seems like government's going against anything for the people. It's just, it's um, well, nothing more than sabotage if you look at Jacob Zuma down. Whereas you go there and you see how people can move on with things. Um, we know we all have our, our scars, humanity-wise, I guess, on this beautiful yet um, tragic continent at times. But these guys are getting on with things. And uh, to know that cricket is part of this whole process, well, it's great. I look forward to going back there. I didn't get a chance to go to the Gorillas. It's a bit of a process. You've got to drive uh, about an hour from Kigali. Then it's like a three-hour hike. And it's also like $1,200, I think. So anyway, next time, something to look forward to. So I will suggest that uh, Rwanda, well worth visiting. Good place. Uh, another country I've got to, and again, just reinforces how travel is just the most amazing thing in the whole world. Uh yeah, look, like I said, I'm making a video of this, so you'll be able to see stuff. It's no point me droning on anymore. What you do need to talk about, though, is another intrepid traveler. And uh, you know Dennis so well. He's, well, I mean, if you were to break it down in my guess, he's actually borderline a, a co-host nowadays. So Dennis had this idea. Dennis Friedman is, well, let's just say he's, he's his own man. He he backs down for nothing. He managed to, just to give you a background, Dennis started online as a parody account for the late, great Richie Benno. So Dennis created this this Richie um, profile, which was obviously a parody, but it was brilliant. He he just had a way about like being entertaining, and he was like on the money with all different things, so much so that I think it was the Daily Telegraph or one of the English newspapers actually quoted him as a, on the front page. It was like there's a little uh, insert at the top there. They actually quoted one of Dennis's tweets as Richie Benner. This is how good and how believable he became. But he became an absolute superstar on the back of this. And eventually that account kind of died. I'm not sure if Twitter banned it or he just lost interest in it or whatever it was. But that's how he got into Cricket Online. He then started a really successful blog. He started even better podcasts. And so much so he's gone from sort of like backroom blogger to sort of a more of a mainstream success in that you know he writes various publications around the world, one of which is uh, a newspaper in Pakistan. So he developed a bit of a, an audience in Pakistan. He became a bit of a cult legend with those guys. And uh, he just had a way of always stoking the flames and really pissing off Indian <laughs> cricketers and fans. So on the back of that, I think he became more endeared towards the Pakistan people. And um, he had this trip planned where obviously there's no cricket in Pakistan, international cricket that is. And a lot, a lot of it had to do, of course, with the terror attacks and the Sri Lankan team bus. And uh, they, as we all know the story, they had to then play in the UAE. So it's not a great thing because cricket in Pakistan is something that the world needs. There's been so many amazing uh, battles played there, so many amazing grounds. And, of course, if you look at Pakistani cricket in the heyday, I mean, growing up like Java Miendad, Tawaki Yunus, uh, Wazi Akram, I mean, these guys were – they were amazing. And uh, it really was something to go to. And as an uh, opponent, going to Pakistan was quite a fearsome thing. Anyway, so Dennis wanted to get to the bottom of this. And he wanted to go out there and speak to the people, discover what it's like there, chat to some of the legends. And he planned a rather audacious trip, which somehow came to be. Dennis, would it say that your trip was audacious or was it just more just, I don't know, feeling a curiosity? Oh, jeez, Ben. Um, <laughs> it was an itch I had to scratch, but if you asked my wife, she said it, she'd probably um, describe it as stupid. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's another word, I guess. Uh, thank you for the kind intro. It's um, well overplayed, but I'll take it. Well, you know, what I was actually doing is I was fluffing for about 18 to 20 on, on the clock because I said I'll chat to you at uh, 20, and I kind of got bored with my own Miranda uh, talk. I, I ran out of steam with that. So, you know, so what you do when you host a podcast is you know this. you got to fill sometimes. Oh, yeah. But, I, but I, I, mean, I mean every word, and it's been, it's been so great to see your online career go. And I think this trip just kind of showed that you are not just your average kind of media person. It took balls to do what you, you did. And I was just so happy to, to see your updates and, and read your updates and see how this trip wasn't just like you went there and you got into some trouble and you maybe had a couple of interviews. It looked like you really did everything you could possibly think of. Oh, look, geez, how to, how to describe it, mate. We, you know, anything with Pakistan, you've got to take with a grain of salt. So we, we had grand plans. Um, and the first step was, you know, a visa was going to take six weeks and that took 14 weeks. So that put everything back. And then um, we had sponsors come and go and come and go and come and go. And um, literally within 
a week before I got there, we finally locked down the corporate sponsorship that allowed me to um, to actually invest in it and film it and do it properly and have proper production and fixes and logistics. Mm-hmm. And then, I don't know, if we planned 100 things when I was there, we probably did 15 of them and the other 85 dropped off, but we replaced those with another 200 that we didn't plan. So, um, you know, peak Pakistan, I guess, but I uh, just had, had the time of our lives. We worked... Um, we were there for 15 days, and I reckon we did 20-hour days most days. It was wow. um, my wife. My wife said you had a, a paid holiday, but uh, I came back pretty exhausted. We put in, you know, we, we we made sure that we gave it our best shot to produce something that um, both we can be proud of as a team, but also, you know, most importantly, tells the story that we wanted to tell. And uh, it's now in production, and and at the end of the day, I hope we we get there. So what are the first impressions? Obviously, you flew in there, and uh, did you have, like, just a, a, one guy with a board saying Dennis Friedman? Or, I mean, like, like I, how, did, how did it all start? Like, was it quite – were you there? Or did it sink in, like, shit, I'm actually in Pakistan. This is crazy. Uh, well, it started in Melbourne. I handed over my ticket to the guys at Etihad Airways who I was flying with to Abu Dhabi and then from there to Karachi. And uh, he says to me – this is a, a, an Aussie guy. He says, oh, what's your final destination? I said, Karachi. And he said, are you fucking kidding <laughs> Um, and then when I got to Abu Dhabi I asked some guy oh where's the flight to Karachi and again he asked he he gave me that same look pointed down the stairs and said are you sure mate is that where you want to go look uh, I don't know you landed in Karachi it's an old airport you know it's not modern Um, you know it's probably like one of the old Heathrow terminals and uh, probably landed about four in the morning took about an hour to get through immigration and customs just because there was one guy manning a booth and six planes had landed at once alright that whole story Um, that old chestnut, yeah. Uh, and let's see. So when we, we got through, I was meant to be meeting my guys there, and um, there was no sign. They told me there'd be a guy, a driver there. We had the old sign, Mr. Dennis, sign written on it. But no, it wasn't there. There was, And some guy with a beard walks up to me in, in broken English, says, mate, do you want a taxi? I said, no, I'm okay, mate. I'm good. And he just kept hounding me and hounding me and, uh, you know, trying to take my bags off me and, all the things you would expect from the subcontinent, and I found it about two minutes later after I was about to clock in one that he was actually my, my driver, just playing a <laughs> playing a trick on me. So that's how it all started, and then um, the guys all sort of appeared from behind bushes and whatnot, and laughing their heads off because I had no idea what they looked like. You got the thing is with this band, I went there not knowing one person. I'd, I'd obviously, um, you know how it works in social media, you know a lot of people via that medium, but I'd actually yeah. never met them. I'd spoken to them on the phone and whatnot, so. I wasn't quite sure who they were or what they looked like and putting a lot of trust in these guys. And uh, they all started appearing. There was a crew of eight of us um, for most of the time. We had three cameramen, a couple of fixers, a production guy. Um, and uh, they took me to a traditional meal of McDonald's straight from the airport gotcha. and uh, <laughs> off it went. All right, so the, the people that you did kind of assemble, so, I mean, these were going to be like your handler, so to speak, because you, you did have some security presence with you. Uh, how essential was that, or was that more just a precaution that they felt you should have? Uh, I didn't ask for the security presence. So, um, well, there's two stories there. So, number one, when we are in Karachi, um, only two years ago, Ben, it was the sixth most dangerous city in the world, according to um, the United Nations, and... Um, the armies essentially got in there with these guys they call the rangers, which is like the paramilitary, and, and essentially just went around and shot all the bad guys. And now it's, I don't know, maybe the 35th most dangerous city in the world, but it's probably safer than Johannesburg. Yeah. Um, and so I never felt I, I never felt in danger. I didn't have my hackles up. I, I, it's very different in India. I've spent time in India quite, quite a bit, and I never felt harassed or people watching me or looking at me because, you know, um, I'm, a bit, I'm a bit different. No, there was none of that. And, uh, which I found surprising, but, um, the first day we were playing a T, uh, there was a T20 match organized for me to play with the guys from the Super Daddy Cricket Club, which is essentially Pakistan's elite, who would, um, kindly put it together. And one of their members, um, is the head of the para, of the uh, anti-terrorism unit in Karachi. So he drove me to the ground and he had a, uh, a Hilux fully manned front and in front of us and behind us with, you know, one of those machine guns that just shoots everything and clears the pathway. Wow. And I asked him, why have you got that? And he says, well, I'm a, I'm a mafia target because I'm essentially cleaning up this town. And uh, so we had all these paramilitary with us every time I was with this guy, Omar. And I found out that he became 
he joined the the uh, anti-terrorism squad because the mafia maybe 10 years earlier had uh, murdered his father so he joined the police found the guy and got him hanged oh wow um yeah it's the kind of place that it is right um but uh, I, I never felt it I, I, I you know i say that you know i had all these cops around me but i never felt and maybe it's because they were there that that was dangerous and then from there, I f- we flew a couple of hours north to a country town called Bar Wulpur, which is in the middle of nowhere in sort of southern Punjab, and it's a desert area. And uh, my visa conditions that I got as a journalist were, were quite limited. I was only allowed to, only meant to be in Karachi, Islamabad, and Lahore. Mm-hmm. Um, but being what we do, we just flew to somewhere we shouldn't have been because apparently there was the first ever Test cricket ground that Pakistan played at there. So I had to go see it. Sure. Anyhow, we landed and we went to the hotel. And as soon as we got there, the hotel called the cops. And, and I said to the guy, why are you calling the cops? He says, well, we don't have permission to host any foreigners here, and your visa says you shouldn't be here. So the <laughs> cops came. We spent an hour with them, and they escorted us to another hotel. They said, look, oh, look, you, you look bona fides. We'll take you to another hotel that has foreigner clearance. And then two minutes after we checked in, we got a phone call saying, please don't leave the hotel. Our military intelligence is coming. They want to ask you some questions as well. So we lost a whole day talking to intelligence personnel from god knows how many agencies trying to convince them i wasn't some sort of international drug dealer or um i probably failed on that regard but i definitely was an international spy so uh that, that that was fun but after that we never saw another cop again um probably until i got to islamabad towards the end of the trip um where i caught up with a friend of yours and i uh, david Oram. all right who hosts the wonderful uh, Willow in the Windies podcast, and he's living in Islamabad because his wife's in the British Foreign Service there. Right. And um, had a coffee with him and his wife, and his wife said, you know, you're being tailed. I said, nah, bullshit, I'm not getting tailed. And she pointed over to a car where guys there with binoculars staring at us. And she walks up to the car and knocks on the door, and she knew the guy. So <laughs> <laughs> um, just just that kind of place. But I... You know, it's the paradox, matter. As I said, I never felt unsafe. I never felt that I'd put myself in places or positions I shouldn't have been. But the flip side of that is, I think the Pakistanis are still quite paranoid and worried about um, the perception of if something went wrong, what what would it mean? And so, therefore, unwittingly, I think I was tailed for the whole fifteen days I was there. That's incredible. It must have made you feel pretty special, though. Like. I mean, like just think, <laughs> think about it. Like for, for a moment, you you felt like Virat Kohli feels at any day of his life. Oh, look, the bit that made me special was more the the people, like just the general guy in the street, uh, you know. We did quite a bit of marketing before the trip to, to try and get some publicity and made sure that it would help open some doors when we were there, and, and that worked. But I had random people coming to me in airports, in the street, when I was sitting outside just having, a, a you know, some barbecue chicken and a coffee at 1 o'clock in the morning. People would walk up and go, you're Dennis, right? Can I take a selfie? And... That that little bit of stardom, you know, was quite humbling. Um, and a lot of people, I couldn't tell you how many, Ben, just so many were sort of saying what you're doing and, and, and this documentary you're trying to make about showing the, uh, the positive side of Pakistan means so much to us. And I didn't really quite cotton on to that until I got there. And, and um, But these guys are just craving for some international recognition that the place is not what it was in 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 2009 and that they've cleaned it up and 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 also i think they're trying to sell the fact that they're not india they're very it's a very different culture to india Mm. um but and it's hard to explain but uh i'm trying to put the movie together to show that and i'm also trying to write a book on it as well to get into a bit more nuance but um geez it's uh it's hard to to tell people to take your family there for a holiday but it's definitely one to go and check out now, you said that obviously a few interviews fell away, but from what I saw, you kind of got all the ones that I, I would go for if I was a person looking to kind of get the best of Pakistan. When you got there, I mean, when we spoke last time, you said you got a bit of a loose schedule of what you want to do, where you're going to do it, and how you can do it. How did that happen as you hit the ground? I mean, like guys like Miss Bar, I mean, how did this how did this happen? Was it as easy as having a schedule, or did you, was there a lot of waiting around it? Uh, yeah, so, um, look, uh, um, so... Uh, you know, let me thank a couple of people that helped us out. So the guys at crickandjif.com, um, which is a Pakistani website that essentially show every ball of every match around the world as a GIF, like 20 seconds after it's happened on their website. They've got a wonderful um, app downloaded. But they sort of looked after me. They had a few plans, and they're a, a PCB digital partner. So they had access to, to some areas. Um, there's another mob in Pakistan called Find My Adventure, 
which did all our logistics. They also had access to people. And then the guys at the Super Daddy Cricket Club just knew everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, got, I went there with plans. You know, the first day I was meant to be playing a T20 with Farwood Alarm. He didn't turn up because he had to go to a first-class match somewhere else, but he sent his brother instead. You know, um, so I played with Farwood Alarm's brother. Um, Yunus Khan couldn't come, so he sent his manager. Um, we missed Shah Hidafridi as we're on our way to see Moen Khan. So we're driving in to see Moen Khan, and Shah was driving out because he had to go to another um, appointment. It's just kind of how the place worked. Yeah. Um, we, got to, we got to Imran Khan via someone who knew someone who knew someone. We got to Mizbah um, via the guys who are sort of managing some of the um, Pakistan Super League teams. Um, who else did we get to? We got to um, Zahir Abbas. He was known as, um, you know, the Asian Bradman. We got to, uh, geez, um, Abdul Razak, you and I would have grown up watching, hitting both yep. our bowlers for six all over the place. Yep. Got to one of the Akmal brothers. Um, that, that, well, there's a story. So I, I turned up to do push-ups with Mizbah. It, I wanted to do a push-up challenge against him, and I won't give away what happened there too much, but I um, went to a ground where he was playing a first-class match, and Adnal Akmal um, was there keeping and when he came off the ground he saw me there as the only white guy and ran straight up to me and said where are you from and i said australia he said oh, i see you've got the tv crew can i be on your show <laughs> so <laughs> uh, unlike an acmel brother to go seeking uh, fame and fortune like that um that he was amazing he was a really nice guy he talked about everything when it came to match fixing um he, he said he knew nothing about it yeah well, obviously. <laughs> yeah ran away but everybody yeah but yeah you know, just yeah we got to some really interesting guys i got to um, geez, as I said, I got the head of an anti of the anti-terrorism squad. Um, I spoke to a lot of managers and owners of PSL teams. Um, Najam Seti, who's the head of the PCB, the groundsman at Gaddafi Stadium. Um, you name it, we we got into just some amazing people. But uh, the the crew really fired up when we got to Imran Khan, which was the second last day. You know, when I said I'm going to go interview Abdul Razak, you know, three or four wanted to come. Yeah. When I said I'm going to Imran Khan, we had two full buses of people that decided to tag along um, just to try and get a selfie or meet the man. He's uh, walks around with great reverence, that bloke. Well, is, is he still involved in politics there? Yeah, he runs a party called PTI. I, it's, I can't remember what it stands for, something in Urdu, but uh, he could well be the next Prime Minister of Pakistan. Um, you know, and we're discussing this in the bus. Can we think of any cricketer in the world who has done more for their country than Imran Khan? He's a guy that, you know, sort of gave them some self-belief in 92 when they won, won the World Cup and now he's opened, you know, he's, an, he's a corruption fighter, he's opened cancer hospitals, he's now trying to, you know, um, become the Prime Minister based on an anti-corruption platform. Um, he's done well, some amazing well, well, things. Well, yeah, I mean, but, like, he, uh, he's done a bit more than Hansi, if that's what you're getting at. Just a little bit, just a little bit. <laughs> how, is, how is Hansi from the grave going, by the way? How's that novel coming along? <laughs> Uh, I'll, I'll get to it at some stage, but like you, you've obviously interviewed a fair few people with having your show, and you know, obviously your podcast went to some great heights of of recent years. Like, did you feel kind of more nervous um, about doing the interviews this time around, or because you were there, you were just caught up in how great this whole thing was? Um, look, it's hard to explain, Ben. I guess you know, I've been the the, the podcast and the radio show has been going for and a bit years now, so we've interviewed everyone from I don't know South Africans, you know. Paul Harris was a highlight, obviously. Um, obviously. <laughs> but, you know, we've interviewed some big names over the journey from Gilly and McGrath and, I don't know, we've had Blowers on the show and Bumble's Lloyd and, like, we've, you know, some big media personalities. And I, I I think after a period of time you'd understand this, you know, you, you don't become nervous so much. You just yeah. want to make sure you put out good product. And I was there for work, essentially, and um, I wasn't nervous in any of the interviews. Imran Khan, one, I was quite calm, you know, I was more focused on have we got the right setting? Have, is the audio working? Have I got my questions prepared? Um, I think Mizbar was the hardest one I did. Um, insofar as I tend to find that I can form or create a rapport with most people I chat to after one or two or three questions, and maybe it's just uh, being a larrikin or telling a joke or having a funny accent, but. Um, with Mizbar, he didn't break. He was exactly as you see him on TV. You know, All he's right. just that cool, calm, collected guy. If you ask a dumb question, you know, I asked him a question. My wife likes me with a bit of facial hair. Should I grow it as long as yours? And he didn't flinch. He just went into why he has a beard and how it's a religious thing and I shouldn't make fun of it. <laughs> so I couldn't, I couldn't get him to break. And um, 
he he was yeah I, I, just a great leader and spoke about leadership quite a lot he, he was a tough one to interview not that he didn't give me anything but i just i felt that i was i was always on borrowed time with him there he was okay when is this going to finish i'll give you something but i you know I, i'm not quite warming to you dennis whereas everybody else um even imran were more than happy to engage and um yeah, not nervousness so much in terms of who I was meeting, but probably nervousness more in terms of am I, are we creating good content for, for for this movie, you know? Sure. And did you did you try for Inzimano Hook? Uh, we tried for Inzi, um, and our dates just didn't line up. And to be fair, probably a good thing it didn't because he's not the greatest speaker in English. Um, yeah. We tried Wasim, um, and I know his lawyer quite well. Uh and he suggested probably wasn't going to happen. Um, but but while I was there, mate, uh, oh geez, I don't know what to tell you on, on radio without getting myself sued because I've been sued by two cricketers before, as you know. Um, let's, let's, let's just say I've seen some documents that some cricketers, Pakistani cricketers of the 90s signed um, where they admitted to things they probably shouldn't have done. Oh, wow. And uh, in good time, I'll, I'll release that in the right way. But, uh, geez, there's been a lot of cover-ups in, in match-fixing in the past, and there's people involved in Pakistani cricket now. Um, and some of the names have already said who really shouldn't be involved, to, oh, wow. shouldn't have anything to do with cricket. And while you were there, you also you made a few media appearances too. I mean, you were on TV, you were on radio. Is this something that was scheduled, or was just like a nice bonus that people just caught up in what you were doing? Yeah, just through the journalism contacts, I guess, through social media. A lot of people, uh, radio is very big in Pakistan. It gets to the masses, um, and so does television, obviously. So, I don't know, we would have done three or four radio appearances. Um, and I went on PTV on a show called Game on High with Dr. Norman Niaz. And um, PTV is their public broadcaster, you know, their national broadcaster, like the ABC or the BBC. Yeah. Um, and Game on High is their number one sports show, rates its, rates its tits off. And uh, we just did an hour debating everything um and it was fantastic so hopefully it's up on youtube shoot on soon but um that was great fun um yeah just that you know the, the opportunity just turned up i think just being there um <laughs> created the opportunity if you don't go nothing will ever happen ben so um like i said we planned probably a hundred things we had a running sheet every day and either we ran out of time or things got cancelled or things just couldn't happen because of visa conditions or the police said no you can't go there yeah, but other things filled its filled its place, and um, I'm just so grateful I had the opportunity, and uh, just really hope I do the story justice when it comes together at the end. So you were saying how obviously Pakistan's very different to India, something that they will remind you of very quickly. Now we know that yeah. the, the Indian players, like there's been a lot of money. These guys are absolute superstars in many many senses. Do you feel like a lot of the Pakistan greats from recent times who have retired, kind of, I mean, do they live quite a lavish life there, or is everything kind of understated because of just their culture? Uh, it's a bit of both. So Shahid Afridi was driving around in the Toyota Corolla. Um, he, he, he works so as an probably, Uber driver? <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was warned that any ex-Pakistani cricketer that's turned to God or is running a cricket academy you need to be careful of because they've probably earned their money some other way. Um, but um, uh, no, I wouldn't say it's over lavish. There's like, you know, you'd expect a Zahir Abbas or a Mizbar to have a nice house, and they do. Imran Khan's just got an amazing compound. Um, but I wouldn't say the wealth is thrown around. I, I, you know, if you go to Delhi or Mumbai, that's a place where people show off a lot more. Um, I found it quite understated in, in, in a lot of ways, and, and maybe that's the Islamic side coming through Ben and you know it's the Islamic Republic of Pakistan and um, there was just some subtleties in the cultural differences that I picked up for example the the slums aren't as bad as in the hardly see any slums there's poor areas but it's not slums per se right. um, so the social systems obviously work a bit better uh, you have um, beggars coming up to the cars and whatnot like you have in India but in Pakistan people on the street just give people the biggest money they, and, and with a smile it's not seen as they're not hitting them away or pushing them away mm-hmm. um, I never got sick from the food yeah, and okay, then well, someone that, told that me later be next question, yeah. <laughs> yeah and then people told me later well it's because it's all halal so it's all prepared in a clean manner in line with the religion so you, it's unlikely you're going to get sick and I, and I didn't and and in, in along with those lines everything was clean the streets were clean the um, you know there's there's washrooms and things everywhere i guess with people cleaning before they pray 
um, which is part of the religion. And so I just found, you know, there's subtle differences, but I think the, the Islamic side of things really helped, or really helps um, keep it a modern place. Karachi and, and Lahore, you know, these are cities of 20 million people, and they were as clean as Melbourne. They weren't any dirtier or any or any better. Oh, wow. Um, just more traffic, more people, but, um, you know, well-organized and, um, social order seems, seems to work there quite well. So I was really impressed with that and, uh, something I hadn't expected to see. Okay. Well, so with the lack of international cricket, uh, the, the grounds there, I mean, you're not going to get much development or sort of renovation if there's no money coming mm. into it. Like were the grounds, did they, did they feel like they're quite old and almost dilapidated? Uh, the first class grounds are nice. Um, so I went to a couple of first class grounds in Karachi and Lahore and, you know, beautiful cooch grass and, and some modern facilities. Nice. Um, Gaddafi stadium where the PSL final was played last year in Lahore and, and Sri Lanka just played a T20 the other night and the world 11 played earlier in the year. Mm-hmm. That's had a little bit of a revamp, but it's still an old stadium. You know, it's getting towards end of life. Um, and the Karachi stadiums kind of falling apart so yeah that that's going to be a problem for, for pakistani cricket although there's a lot of other grounds i didn't get to visit them but did a bit of research and looked at them in other cities like faisalabad and out in quetta and whatnot where there are some modern facilities the government has been spending some money and i think the psl is bringing a lot of cash back into the country as well sure um but yeah there's you know the lack of international cricket's really hurt that country that's there's, for whatever reason, Pakistan and cricket's an inseparable type of culture, and they rely on each other so much. It's it's really the great social leveler, you know. If Pakistan's winning, the whole country smiles, and if Pakistan's losing, the whole country's sort of frowning, irrespective of what job you have or what car you drive or how much money you've got or or, or whatnot. It really is a social leveler, and, and not having it there and and with a country with I think seventy percent of the population is thirty years of age or under, a lot of them probably haven't even seen Pakistan play at home. Wow. Um, and that's such a shame insofar as, yeah, as I said, I, I, I don't feel from my experience now and from what I saw and the people I spoke with that Pakistan's any less safe than playing in London. You know, bombs and terror attacks go off there all the time. You know, would you take your kids to Disneyland knowing what's going on in the USA? Probably because yeah. you've got some prejudices and biases. But um, all the trouble in Pakistan seems to be in the west of the country along the Afghan border, which is nowhere near the big cities. And... Um, it's a big place, Pakistan, and, and, and the city's felt pretty safe. That's a very good point. From the interviews that you did with a variety of people, did you feel there was like a genuine sense of positivity that the cricket will return and things can get back to once what they once were? Oh, absolutely. And, and, and everyone's trying to do their bit there. Everybody's trying to do their bit. And, and no more than Najam Sethi, who's the head of the PCB. He's just done an amazing job getting the World Eleven there, getting Sri Lanka there. Um, getting the PSL back in there. He's starting to open the door or, you know, little cracks in the damn wall starting to form that will allow cricket to come back. It's not going to be quick. Yeah. Um, and I th- and I was discussing with most people and, and they most tend to think that until there's a full PSL season played at home, not just one or two matches, that it's going to be hard to entice a full international tour. You might get the odd fly-in, fly-out, three ODIs, you know, hotel to... to you go from the hotel on a bus straight to the stadium and back out again, but you're not going to get a full tour around the country until you've got a PSL season played there. So that's the next big step for these guys. Um, and if they can manage to pull that off, I think we'll see cricket come back. And, and, and that's not going to be easy for them, mate, because they really haven't hosted any ta- um, series since 2009. So it's the little things that you don't think about, that they don't have the skill sets anymore. Yeah. They don't have local kids who know how to put together a broadcast. They don't know how to do ticketing. They don't know how to do security properly. They don't know how to organise parking and traffic they don't know how to cater a stadium they don't know how to sell corporate events all these things have gone all those skill sets um and the the nuances around bringing cricket in and bringing money and um that they need to relearn um and the only way i think they can do that is through the psl interestingly enough that probably the most um the person with the with the least amount of um, positivity about Pakistani cricket was Imran Khan himself. He's he's quite down on the on the first class structure there. He thinks there's there's 18 first class teams, mm-hmm. and he thinks there's way too many, and it's sort of diluting the talent. And he also still thinks there's a lot of nepotism and corruption down at the local levels. That's that's keeping good people out and and so forth. So, um, but you know, as a whole, I'd say the majority of people are putting in whatever they can to try and find a way to bring cricket back. Well, I guess if Imran's going to know some stuff, it, yeah, it, 
there's the one person you can probably trust and a great variety of opinions. So the documentary, yeah, yeah, Imran's clean. I can, I can confirm Imran is clean. Yeah. I mean, he, he sounds like a guy who's going to be realistic because he knows a whole bunch. Cause I think where you are, where he is, I think you, you're privy to a lot of information. So this, this yeah. documentary, you say you can put it together. Um, you know, what's the plan for it? Is it going to be online based? Yeah. Is some networks looking to pick it up as well? Because just judging from the back of our little chat here today, this sounds like this is going to have a hell of a lot of good content to pick up on. Yeah, I hope so, mate. Um, we sh- we shot about 160 hours of footage wow. times three different cameras. We had we had a drone, which I know you are fond of, so we got a lot of drone footage of places that we shouldn't have been. I tried to fly the drone over the Indian border, but um, was told don't do it. Yeah. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, we're creating six six uh, half hour episodes, um, each with a different theme. So we're tackling things such as women in Islam and cricket. We're tackling corruption and match fixing. We're tackling how important cricket is to Pakistan, you know, then there's the old Vox Pop stuff and the travel bits that intertwine and bits and pieces. But uh, hopefully have it ready by just after Christmas, maybe early January. Um, PTV in Pakistan are, are taking it on TV. We've got five target markets for TV that we're talking to. Once that's done, then we'll get it on Netflix and Amazon. And uh, if that's unsuccessful, I'll just stick it up on Dennis Does Cricket and give it away. I don't care. Um, you know, but... Uh, trying to get out get it out to as many people as we can and, and we think sort of proper distribution is the best way to do that so we can leverage off their marketing arms but uh sure targeting targeting quite a few things and then um, i'm trying to follow up with a book now my working title for my book is selfies with selfies with imran so let me know what you think about that yeah that's that's good enough for me to start well wow, that's that's really incredible i mean you, you just find different ways to level up in what you do i mean like from here where do you want to go with this like is this do you want to do more trips like this is this something that interests you or was it just a lot of hard work and you kind of have you did this one yeah good question like i don't know ben I've always struggled being called a journalist or being labelled with the, you know, the old world wants to label the new world. And, you know, people like yourself and myself, I've just done what interests me and done it my own way. For me, I see the whole cricket stuff as a hobby. And um, as long as it stays enjoyable, I'll keep doing things that interest me. Uh, I I guess the whole Pakistan thing, you know, it was a bit of a whim. I, I don't know if I told you the story about this, but I was drunk watching the Champions trophy semi-final in sydney with a mate mm-hmm. and i said uh on social media if pakistan were beating england at the time i said if pakistan win this bloody thing i'm going to go to pakistan and then they freaking won so i had to go because i made commitments to about <laughs> seventy thousand people right um and 14 weeks later i'm in the country and crowd funded my ticket and, and found a sponsor likely to to give me some money to film it and it was like it just kind of happened it wasn't a three-year master plan it, it was nothing like that it was originally i was going to go and film it on my iphone um, but you know, been a bit blessed in that we can put together something a bit deeper than that and tell the story of Pakistan and cricket and sort of explore that in a, in a meaningful way. And um, I don't know what's next, mate. I don't know. Maybe we'll just keep plodding away with Cat on the podcast, or I don't know. I've got no idea. You got any ideas for me? Uh, I'll give us some thoughts. We said we'll just do this Rwanda trip together. That that to me was pretty cool to go to. Very, very different. I saw that. You were there with what Nick Holt was there as well from, from the Telegraph. And yeah. I saw some other guys were there with you. Yeah, it looked, looked amazing. And they're doing some wonderful things. Well, um, it, it, I, I it is it's great. because it, it's such a base thing. So it's not like they had cricket. No, they don't have cricket. Then they've got cricket again. It's like they've mm. literally had nothing. So, yeah, as I was saying at the start of the podcast, there's now 40 schools involved with cricket in Rwanda. I mean, Rwanda's tiny. It's a very, very small place. Yeah. I didn't realize it was so small. And, uh, yeah, it, it's, it was an eye-opener. But I think as well... Now, the thing I touched on in my intro is that, like, as fans and as cricket people, it's just so great to go out to these places. Not because it makes you sound like you're interesting and you, you know, there's like a whole culture of people who hide behind charitable things. Meanwhile, they're just trying to pick up chicks. Yeah. But to actually go there and, <laughs> and understand how things happen and, like, you know, you, you're so grateful for what we have at home that we can just rock up anywhere and see live cricket. And, you know, we, we're so blessed with talent that we can even pull the piss out of some players. I mean, meanwhile, some countries don't even have players. So, yeah, and that's the thing. Cool. I, that's the thing I got out of my trip, Ben. You know, um, it, it was all about the people, and I'll, I'll say this: you know, no different to Australians and no different to South Africans. We don't take ourselves too seriously. We're kind of the underdogs in, in, in many regards on a world stage. If you remove sport as the overlay, yeah. um, you know, we give everyone a fair shot, except except our politicians. We we think they're all dickheads, but apart from that, um, you know, we treat everyone as equal as we can. 
Um, we're, we're self-deprecating. We all love our kids. We all want to do best for our families and our community, and um, we love our sport. And in that regard, whether you've got a Pakistani passport or you live in Cape Town or you grew up in Sydney, you, we're all the same. So true. And the humanity, the humanity of that place, mate, it's just amazing. I'm sure Rwanda was was, was the same. I can guarantee. You know, if you if you strip back some of the crap, the top five percent of crap, which is you know human drawn borders on a map and and some other rubbish, we're, you know, ninety five percent of humanity is probably exactly the same. Spot on, Dennis. Well, this is what travel teaches you, doesn't it? You know, we we can sit at yeah. home. We can sit at home in this wonderful veil of social media. We can become bigoted and stupid about things we think we know about. But as soon as you get in the ground somewhere, that's where you really learn and that's where you really grow. Dennis, on those profound words, I'm going to cut it off here because I'm sure you almost at home now. Uh, thanks for your time as always. And yeah, uh, whatever I can do to help promote this documentary, I'm, I'm always here. I, I can't wait to see this stuff. Oh, thanks, Ben. Much appreciate it. I think our next, uh, I've now thought of our next project. I think you and I have got to go play the top 100 golf courses around the world. We'll film that with your drone. Uh, I'm down for that. I am 100% Yeah, down for let's that. do it. You know what we do? <laughs> all, we need to do all we need to do is just tie in an like, international airline sponsor. It'll be foolish for them not to take us on. Pakistan International Airways, mate. They're up for anything. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Dennis. Thanks for your time as always. All the best. Bye, mate. Cool, that's it for the Bounce Show this week. Of course, Dennis Friedman, he's all over the Twitter, so Dennis Cricket underscore. That's where you can find him. Uh, although, I don't need to tell you this because, well, he's been in the show about 10 times. He is my favorite guest. I think you know, Dennis is the kind of guy that if I'm ever feeling a bit flat in the work that I do or I do any inspiration, um, you know, Dennis is always on the cutting edge. and He's doing such amazing things in cricket and online media. And he's a good guy on top of that. Uh, that's always a good thing. Not too many out there. So that's it for this week. Catch, uh, yeah, that, that Rwanda video that I'm going to make is going to be on the YouTube channel. Follow the bounce on YouTube. That'll be up there early next week. Got a lot of work to get through. Uh, currently on the YouTube channel, there will be a video about the oxygen therapy that I'm doing. As you know, I'm still trying with this whole sub 12 second 100 meter challenge. It's gone terribly the last few months, so badly. But I managed to find some people who are helping me get my body in a better place so I really can get back to the high-intensity workout. And kind of out of desperation, also out of curiosity, I'm now putting my body through some mild hyperbaric oxygen therapy stuff. So there's this chamber that I go to. I've uh, been there four sessions now. So for an hour, um, I basically lie in this chamber. It gets decompressed. So basically, you go from... Okay, we're high here at altitude in Johannesburg, but the chamber takes you to four meters below sea level. So you can imagine how your ears are popping while that happens. And while you're there, they then pump a whole bunch of oxygen in. You've got a mask on. And for an hour, you just lie there and uh, you become better. So I've had four sessions. I'm really feeling better. Video on the YouTube channel. Otherwise, follow me on Twitter at follow the bounce. Uh, same with, yeah, all the other channels and then Instagram, the bounce. And you can catch this podcast if you just catch in the back of the end of, end of this live on the bounce at CLOZA as well as cliffcentral.com. Right. I have spoken to myself horse. It is time to carry on with the week and I shall catch you back same place next time next week. This is cliffcentral.com.